Hi, I'm Michelle Galora. Our reading this morning is from Acts 9. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thanks be to God, and as Johnny said, my name is Dean Miller, and I am delighted to be here with you again, although I've noticed the three times I've preached for you all during COVID, it's always been raining when I've come, so I'm sorry if you're starting to associate me with darkness and gray skies, but it's a delight to be here with you, here from Johnny's living room, and uh, we, of course, love you guys so much. Um, our church, Church of the Ascension, you've done so many things over the years, so we continue to do something now as we join into this series. You guys are in on generosity. One of the things I like to do on Saturday mornings is read uh, a little article, a column in The Guardian, theguardian.com that they have called Blind Date. And it is exactly like exactly what it's about. What they do is they, they put people together who are, go on dates and then they interview them about the dates. And they've been doing them during COVID, and, um, which of course you can tell is, or is virtual over Zoom. And they interview a man and a woman about what the date was like. And so, you know, some of those people have great dates, some are awkward, some are frustrating. And if you've been on a date or a blind date, you can feel the empathy, the anxiety, the frustration as these people try to connect. What is striking in the ones during COVID is they almost all say, why did you want to do this? They almost all say they're just looking to make a connection in this difficult time. Their, their expectations are not very high. So yesterday morning, uh, I read one that was great. Like this couple had had a great time. It was clear from the get-go that both they had started the interview with him. Both he and she had had a good time and were hoping to meet again. They gave really big numbers. So I showed that to my daughter. 
and she read it. And then, she, you know, if you scroll through the article, they give the most recent ones. And she clicked on one from about two weeks ago. And it was clear from the get go on this one that this man and woman had not had as good a time. And it was so interesting. It's always interesting to watch people describe that and try to be gracious with the interviewer. So this guy had, was, was quite kind and gracious. You could tell, again, from the first sentence or two that it really wasn't something where there's sort of connection that they wanted to follow up on. But they always asked them to, to summarize the other person and then to describe them in three words. So the summary he, let's call him Bill, Bill gave to her, let's call her Susan, was it may not have been a match, but Susan is a wonderful person who deserves all the success in the world. Now, think about going on a date with somebody knowing early on, I mean, they cut the date shorter than they had allowed time for, but, but giving that sort of very gracious and generous response, right? And I thought, okay, good for you, Bill. That must have been hard, but you look at you being very generous. Again, this series we're in. This is a generous person. Susan, on the other hand, says this, not my usual type. I feel like maybe he could have brushed his hair. <laughs> now, I bet Bill brushed his hair. But no life, you read through, and I'd encourage you, again, this is a little pro tip for your Saturdays from now on. Read BlindDateGuardian.com. It's pretty fun. But I thought, I bet Bill brushed his hair, and you didn't have to say that. <laughs> Here's the three words Bill gave for Susan. Fun, caring, and driven. Again, what a kind thing to say after a bad date. What she said was better suited elsewhere. Better suited elsewhere. And as I read that, I thought, well, the what a striking sense of like, here's one person who is generous in spirit towards somebody else. And here's somebody else who could not get it together to be generous to somebody else. For whatever reasons, context, expectations, family of origin, whatever reasons, you see very interesting things. Our churches are in this season on generosity. Again, it's the Easter season, the 50 days of the year where we set aside to think about feasting. And it's a particularly lovely time to focus in that time on what it means that God is generous to us and that we get to be generous to other people. Johnny, the last couple of weeks, you guys have had a very Trinitarian start. We were playing a little catch up in our church. This was our first week last night when I preached on this. But you guys have started with the Father and then the Son and then the Holy Spirit, some today. And we'll keep looking at all three of them, the God's character. You've looked at how God is generous. You looked at how creation is abundant. You looked at Jesus holding us closely last week, Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This, again, is a great thing to do during Easter. We celebrate on Easter. We sing. We pray. We rejoice. We feast. But that generosity spills forward. And again, the church calendar gives 50 full days to celebrate what happened at Easter. But we know that we live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world... We wonder about God's generosity. Our churches synced up during Lent on Revelation, right? And if you remember, we looked at the dragon and the lamb and the lamb being on the throne. But in the unseen world, the fight that's going on, the dragon does beg the question, well, gosh, maybe God isn't generous. Is this a scarce world? And what we're asking this series, both your church and our church, is what does it look like to believe in and trust that God's generosity undergirds the world we live in? And as always, the last few weeks, we remind ourselves it's so important right now in the midst of the global disruption we're a part of. We have a scarcity mindset. It's so easy and it's kind of torqued up to 11, isn't it? Is there going to be a vaccine for you? What's the financial situation going to be like? Will you ever get to come out of your house and go to church, etc., etc., etc.? One of the real lifelines for me during the COVID 
pandemic has been the Carrie Newhoff podcast on Spotify. I'd encourage you all to listen almost every week. I'm continually listening. I recommend stuff to Johnny. He recommends stuff to me. I recommend it to my wife and other friends that we have. It's been a real joy and help because he's interviewing people and they're helping people understand what it's like to live. A couple weeks ago, we had Rick Warren on. Rick Warren, of course, is the senior pastor of a big, big church in Southern California called Saddleback Valley Community Church. My parents live really near Saddleback, so I'm real familiar with the church and Rick. And if you know Rick, you know one of the things he's particularly good at is giving concise and memorable descriptions about things that are happening. And in this podcast, Rick described how we all have undergone this major disruption. Everybody in the world has undergone what he described as five major things in the last year. There's been a global infirmity, that's the pandemic. There's been racial inequality. There's been social instability, the rioting in cities and around our country and around the world. There's been financial instability. And then there's been political incivility with the questions about the election, what happened here in town in early January, global infirmity, racial inequality, social instability, financial instability, and political incivility. What is striking about that is that literally everyone you meet in your life has undergone those five things in some way, shape, or form. The ripple out of those has affected everyone that we come in contact with. And those five things beg all kind of questions about scarcity and generosity and God. In those places, the people we are coming into contact with are in pain and sorrow and grief and lament and fatigue. And most of the scholars and, and professionals in, who are in the realms of mental health are telling us that the wave of grief and lament is actually not here now, it's offshore. And it's probably going to be a year or two or three before it really hits because we're not out of the pandemic. We're still not back to normal. We haven't calibrated our lives to kind of the, what it would look like to move forward with vaccines and everybody feeling safe. So in those spaces, everybody you come in contact with is carrying a bit of pain and is easily triggered. I was having a conversation with a friend this week who's over an institution and making decisions that affect a lot of people. And as you know, anybody who's making a decision right now that affects institutions about gathering, not gathering, to do something, to not do something, emotions run high. And this person made a decision someone didn't like. And he got an email from someone who's, who's been a friend, who's someone that knows him. And they said, I feel betrayed by you and what you did. Betrayed. Not, I don't like your decision, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm frustrated. I feel betrayed. Okay, Judas betrayed Jesus. That's the verb betrayed using its proper context. But people are so weighted right now and we're so easily triggered. We're all going to be overreacting right now. You're surrounded by people who are short of temper, short of hope, and again, in need and pain. Now, the, the understanding you and I should have in the church, it's historically, in those places, is exactly where the gospel moves in. In those places of need and pain is where the good news of God's generosity to the world inbreaks in a powerful way. If you look down through church history, that's where the church does its best work with people in pain, globally, locally, and on the streets here in Vienna. We get to stand and relate to others out of the generosity of God's world. But if you're here this morning with us in any way, or you're watching the recorded version of this, and you're listening to me and you're thinking, you know, I can't do that. 
when I'm relating to people, I'm more like Susan than Bill. I feel everybody is better suited elsewhere. Just get out of my way. Well, I have a hero for you. So let's look at our passage this morning in Acts, Acts 9. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. Acts 9 and the verses you heard read. If you remember in Acts, Acts 6, 7, and 8, the church is exploding, the young church, and experiencing persecution. That's the best way to graph those pages. It explodes first with Stephen as a martyr in Jerusalem in Acts 6. He gives this beautiful sermon about just what has happened with Jesus coming, the generosity God gave to us in Jesus, and the persecution, the scarcity mindset of the Pharisees pushing back on Jesus. You can't be the Messiah. And they get so angry at Stephen, of course, they drag him out of Jerusalem. Literally drag him out and stone him to death. And what we read in the end of that paragraph is that there's a man named Saul who's a part of the leadership of the group who's leading the stoning. If you keep reading, you hear more and more about Saul in Acts 7 and Acts 8. And what you begin to realize is here's a leader in the persecution. He's energetic for the task. Luke is describing a young man, Saul, who of course becomes the Apostle Paul, who is a threat to the church. Some of the phrases that get used as he's uh, destroying the church. Saul began to destroy the church is what Acts 8 says. And what he's doing is with with a warrant, he's a warrant for the, the police of Jerusalem and the temple. He's going in and literally dragging people out of their homes. So picture whatever street you live on, maybe an apartment building, a townhouse, a condo, a single family dwelling, your neighbors, you're hearing a commotion, you look out and someone is dragging the parents out of their home and leaving kids and throwing the parents in prison. That's what Paul is doing over and over and over. You can assume that the prisons there are not great. You can assume that people are dying. There's terrible things happening through this man, Saul, in the church. In Acts 9, Saul's described as breathing murderous threats to the church. Murderous threats. What a powerful phrase in his activity. And what he's done in Acts 9 is he's heard about Christians in Damascus, people who follow Jesus, and he's gotten legal warrant from the leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and drag those people home. Paul describes later in Acts, in Acts 22, when he's describing his own conversion, he says, I was going to Damascus to get those people so they could be punished. He's going to travel about 150 miles by foot to find Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem to have them punished there. He's headed to fight the gospel, to put people in a room, and instead what happens is, of course, he's confronted by Jesus, he's blinded, and he ends up in a room in Damascus. Now, knowing this about Paul, you have a chance to demonstrate the generosity of God in the cross to Paul. What are you going to do? Let's say God came to you and said, hey, I want this man, Paul. I need him. He's going to actually bring the good news of Jesus, not only to Jews, but to the Gentiles. And I need him to know the generosity of God. I need him to know what the cross really means. How are you going to do that? Maybe a long email. Maybe send him a box of flowers. Instead, what happens on the other side of Damascus, there's a man named Ananias that Paul himself, again in Acts 22, describes as a devout observer of the law and someone highly respected by all the Jews living there. Ananias is in prayer. This is a man who is following Jesus, who has experienced the generosity of Jesus, who has given his life to Jesus, but still respected by the Jews. And Jesus meets him in prayer. There's two visions in Acts 9. There's Paul's that we hear about a lot. But there's actually one for Ananias too. He has a vision of Jesus. And he says, Ananias, go 
pray for this man. Now, again, knowing the context of Paul from Acts 6, 7, and 8, and you're Ananias, what would you do? What concerns would you have? Jesus, what are the other people going to think? I'm going to welcome in the murderer to our community. Is this a trick? Maybe this is what Paul does. He goes and pretends to be uh, needy, and then the church comes around, and that's how he finds the underground church. It's not safe. I don't feel up to it. I don't have the generosity of spirit myself to go do it. I, again, would rather Paul was better suited elsewhere than here in Damascus. And Jesus patiently comes back to Ananias. It's lovely, probably in most of your Bibles, the second go from Jesus has an exclamation point. Jesus is making a point to Ananias. And Ananias, who's been so changed by the generosity of God, goes. And the scene with Paul is amazing. Paul's in prayer. He's been fasting and praying for at least three days. It's a safe expectation that he's been confessing, that his world has literally been turned upside down. He doesn't know he's not going to be blind for the rest of his life. We who have read this passage know oh, it's just kind of a season in Paul's life for a few days. But he's sitting there. He doesn't know he might be blind forever. Again, would you expect hope to come from Jesus? The people you've been putting in prison, would you expect them to be the means of God's generosity? Ananias comes to the house. He comes into Paul's room. He calls Paul brother, brother Saul. And then he lays hands on Paul. And the scales fall off and Paul can see. And Ananias welcomes him into the community. He could have staggered all those steps, right? Like, I'm going to pray for you or I'll call you, I won't call you brother. I don't, I'll tell you to go back to Jerusalem and repent while you're on the way. Instead, Ananias welcomes Paul. He extends this enormous generosity of spirit. Jesus could have healed Paul without Ananias, right? He could have made him blind and then unblind without ever using Ananias or the community in Damascus. But that's not the intent. If he does that, he doesn't get the full breadth of what God's generosity really is in the cross and the resurrection. The generosity of God extends to Paul as a person, but it extends to a new community and a new family. And if Paul's not welcomed in with generosity of the Holy Spirit into that family, he will not know the full message to preach. What Paul says later again when he's describing his days in Damascus, he says, I was there many days. What it means is he was there three years. What we know later in the New Testament is Paul actually stays in that community with Ananias, and he's fully discipled and formed by that community. It's, Paul is not who we know in the New Testament. The letters you and I read, the transformation in his own life doesn't happen without that community and Ananias being the, the first point of the spear of generosity of God. What our church and your church would really like for this series to be is a practical transformation in our lives, is that we would be generous people during the next six weeks, that we would be like Ananias. A few weeks ago, I had a chance to preach at our church, many of us know, called the Falls Church Anglican on a Sunday morning, and we talked about feasting. It was the first week of Easter, and I have been thinking about feasting because I'm not a good feaster, and I wanted to know, what, what, what does it mean? So I talked then and studied, then you, know, you really see throughout the Bible God's lavishness when he feasts. And we talked at the Falls Church about what it means to be lavish with our time and our service and our words and even food. And I said there, you know, like maybe have ice cream more than you normally would. Maybe if you're a parent, pull out dessert on a different day of the week. Surprise your kids. Go home and have lots of ice cream. So if you're watching this morning, kids, tell your parents, 
Father Dean said to eat a lot of ice cream today. That's what God's lavishness looks like. But if you keep reading through the Gospels, you notice the feasting isn't just lavish, it's generous, meaning it spills out and extends to other people. God's generosity, another way to define it would be God's lavishness to others. To be not just ice cream for you, but like you and some friends in the neighborhood paying for an ice cream truck to come and people coming and getting ice cream. And what I love in this text is we see Ananias be, be generous and he's, he's not an apostle. He's a godly man, but he has some real reservations. But he's, what he's willing to do is say, I'm available. He calls Jesus Lord. Many of us do that every day. And Ananias says, Lord, here am I. I'm willing to go and pray for the murderer, Paul, who's a threat, who has maybe imprisoned people that Ananias knows in Jerusalem. I'm willing to go because you have been generous to me and I want to be generous to others. Because in the feasts, in the gospels, you see Jesus is way more concerned about who is at the table than what people are eating. Let me ask you, let pretend you're gonna plan a feast that to extend and express God's generosity. Is your first thought maybe about decor and table settings and the food, or is it about who's gonna be there? What we see in the Gospels, Jesus again and again is about older brothers being there and Zacchaeus being there and Mary and Martha being there, about who, not what. And that's what his generosity looks like and it's supposed to look like for us. So I would just encourage you, I'm gonna pray for us in a minute, but, but ask God to give you creative ideas on ways you can be generous, not just lavish during Easter, but the generosity we're studying. You guys are three weeks in, you're ahead of us. To take and ask God, what's it mean for the next several weeks to be generous to others? with your time, with your words, with your service, with food. Take somebody to lunch. Maybe you're in a cubicle back now working or virtually, or take somebody coffee to a neighbor and say, and they ask why, say, my God is generous. My church is doing this crazy thing. This weird guest preacher said to do something. You can blame it on me. Do something generous. I love the story of Kurt Warner. Some of you probably heard this, the NFL Hall of Fame quarterback. He and his family developed a pattern where if they went out to eat, they would notice somebody in the restaurant and they would pay for their meal without letting anybody know. They're Christian people. They wanted to express the generosity of God. That's what you and I get to do. Let's pray. Dear God, again, thank you for my friends and the ways they bless me and the chance to be together as we think about this passage. Thank you for the generosity that we celebrate this particular season of the calendar. And thank you for heroes like Ananias who are not only generous, but available to you. And we offer ourselves, Lord, we have all experienced those five things we describe as well. And we are all carrying pain and fatigue and grief and lament. And yet we gather on Sunday mornings because we have been changed by your generosity. And we want to be available to express that to others. You know, there are people that my friends will come in contact this week that I'll never even meet, but who they have a chance to be generous to. So would you anoint our creativity as we offer ourselves to you? You might just want to offer your hands up to the Lord like we're having communion together. Lord, we make ourselves available to you that we might be generous and expression so people will see what the kingdom of heaven is like because of us. In your name, amen.